Our reading this morning is taken from Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And this can be found on page 1182. Colossians chapter 1, commencing at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. (laughs) We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has, redeemed, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Uh, It's great to see you here. If you're new here, it's particularly great to welcome you here. Uh, I'm Tim Gleghorn. I'm the rector here at St. Swithin's. And as Nicola said at the beginning, we're continuing a series we've been doing at the beginning of through autumn, looking at the theme of identity. Who are we? Whose are we? Why are we here? What's it all about? And we're starting a new series that we're going to spend the next six weeks uh, looking at in the book of Colossians. I planned this a long time ago, and about a month ago I started to look back at what I'd planned or thought we were going to do, and I thought, can we manage to do all this? It's, there's so much in it, and it's so rich, but we're going to still go at it, and you'll see how I'm going to go at it as we go along. But a bit of background, hopefully behind us. Uh, for those who don't know, the letter is written to a group of Christians in Colossae. Colossae is about 100 miles from Ephesus. Uh, it's situated in what now is described as Turkey. 
And Colossae at the time was a cosmopolitan city full of cultural, ethnic, religious, and racial uh, diversity. People with very different viewpoints on life. People with different approaches to life and different philosophies. Paul, who's written this letter, had spent two and a half years in the city of Ephesus, a hundred miles away. And he was assisted by the name of the person you may have picked up in the reading, called Epaphras. Epaphras worked with him. But Epaphras originally came from Colossae. And after planting, helping Paul to plant the church in Ephesus, he went back to his hometown in Colossae to plant the church there. So as Paul's writing this letter, Paul has actually never been to Colossae. But he had a concern for the church in Colossae because it was planted by his friend Epaphras. About five years after this, what we find is this letter was actually written in about AD 60, so very early on in church history. And Paul had found himself uh, in Rome. Uh, For those who know it, he was actually a prisoner. This letter was written in prison in Rome when Paul was under house arrest. And actually, while he was under house arrest, he was actually free to receive visitors freely uh, while he was there. So there weren't restrictions. So a friend, his friend Epaphras, even though Paul was in jail, could actually come and meet with him. What you'll see throughout the letter is a mixture of things, but one of which is Paul, uh, Epaphras brings, brings to Paul news, some amazing news of what God is doing in this church in Colossae. That they're walking in faith, they're walking in hope, and they're walking in love. But he also brings some more discouraging news that they're getting distracted, they're getting led astray by some false teaching, by people who are trying to lead them in a different direction. So Paul is writing this letter to encourage the Colossian church, to encourage the Colossian Christians to keep growing in Christ, to correct the philosophy that was at root, that was at, at root of destroying their faith, but also encouraging them to live the faith that God had called them to. Now, some of you who like lots of information about some letter may think, I've read a lot about this before, but actually one of the things about this letter, when you get into the detail, is what we don't know is exactly what the false teaching or philosophy was. Theologians argue about it forever, but actually the reality is there's a few things that are just worth saying up front as you read this letter. It's a very short letter, You can probably read it in 20 minutes. I'd encourage you to go away and read this letter. Take 20 minutes this week uh, to read it. But we know one of the features of this false teaching was it basically it said it had at its heart was a kind of spiritual elitism that certain Christians were above other Christians. They were greater. They were better. It also seemed that shot through this, this, this teaching that was come was Jewish legalism. It won't surprise you, those who know Paul's letters, that some of the rules and regulations that the, these people were teaching that was uh, leading the church astray was rooted in legalism, where you could only eat certain things, you could only do certain things. But worst of all, at the heart of what's wrong is that people's focus was being taken away from Jesus Christ and it was going away to focusing on themselves 
and their own religious performance. Their eyes had gone away from Jesus and had turned back into themselves and their own religious performance. And what Paul does is he does something that isn't always in all of his other letters. Paul's way of combating this, Paul's way of teaching this, Paul's way of coming to this isn't to say, this is what you do. What he does is he paints a massive picture of who God is. He paints a whole Christian worldview about the way you see all of life, how you think about life, what you think about everything, how you act, how you behave, how you live. He paints a massive picture. He says, basically, you need to take off the glasses you're looking at the world at now, and you need to put on Christian glasses. You need to look at life, the world, in a Christian way, in a godly way. And that's the fundamental challenge. I don't know about you, but uh, when you talk about a worldview, you may think, well, where does my worldview come from? And actually, the reality is it comes through often by osmosis, by our upbringing, by our friendships, by the places we go to, by our work, and by the things we see on television, the things we watch on the internet, and the culture that we're part of, drip, 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 before we know it affects us in radical ways, in significant ways, and before we know it, we're not quite sure what it is we believe and why it is we believe it. We get through the kind of marketing and advertising people. We're bombarded by images of what's life for, what's sex for, what are relationships for, what's work for, what's our money for, what are we to do with our time. Actually, every bit of it, we're bombarded by what's life really all about. Paul, in effect, says to the Colossians right at the front is this, you're living in the wrong mental universe. You aren't seeing the world the way God wants you to see it. Take off the glasses, you're looking at everything now, and put on some godly glasses. It's as fundamental as that. Put on some godly glasses to enable you to see in a Christian way. So if you have your Bibles open at page 1182, that will help you this morning. And as we start, let me, a bit of background, but let me just pray. Gracious Father, as we come afresh to your word today, 2,000 years nearly after it was written, would you breathe your life in it and through it? Would you bring it alive to the things that we need to hear, that I need to hear, that all of us need to hear, not just in our heads, but in our hearts and our spirits, that will enable us to come alive again to the fullness of your life that is in us and as we are in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so first thing we look at is, you, if we look at verse two, let me come to, I'll come back to verse one in a second. But he said, what we discovered is that Christians fundamentally look at life differently to other people. Verse 2, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Christians are called God's holy people. 
Now, a holy person, according to the Bible, is not a special class of Christian. All Christians are called holy people. A holy person is simply a person set apart or separated to God as being one of God's treasured possessions, which means that in everything that we do life, we do it differently from the rest of the world. Now, those of you who've been in the church quite a lot of years will know that over the centuries, pretty much every denomination has got led astray by thinking, do you know what, if I do this, if I dress in a certain way, if I do a certain thing, if I do this, then magically I will be holy, I will be a proper holy person. If I do all these external things, that will make me holy. And before we know it, we get led astray. We we can only eat certain things, we can only drink certain things. It's all about the external things to life that we do. Yet even if we've received the gospel, if we've received the good news of Jesus Christ, we have a power that enables us to change from the inside out. The gospel bears fruit and is growing. So Paul sets out in this letter how God's people, the Colossian church, and I'm also going to transpose St. Swithin's onto it, are called to be different from the world. I'm going to quickly go through six things this morning that I think are distinctive. And this just, I'm going to look at the first eight verses uh, about uh, the Colossian church, but I'm also saying about us as a church. So Colossi, firstly, St. Swithin's is characterized by authority of God's revealed truth. In verse 1 and verses 5 and 6, we see in verse 1, he talks about the will of God. In verse 5, the true word of the gospel. Now, right off here, right at the beginning of Paul's letter, this is, is, Paul is saying, this is not my personal opinion. Nor does Paul begin his letter to the church. Paul, a church consultant. Or Paul, a writer of the Guardian newspaper. Or Paul, an expert in leadership. It is Paul, an apostle by the will of God. Paul is saying, I'm an apostle. I'm one of the people God has chosen to witness the resurrection. And I had the great privilege of being a witness to the resurrection. And in the opening phrases, in the opening parts of this letter to the Colossians, we're immediately confronted by the challenge that Christians claim and say it's the ultimate authority of God's absolute truth. Now, some of you may find that a bit difficult. If you live in 21st century Britain, we live in an entirely different mental universe to that kind of universe. The way we approach truth, broadly, is we think, well, I'll take an opinion poll, I'll do a survey, and I'll work out what the truth is by taking a survey. So, well, that's what we do. We say we approach the truth to do that, and that will become clear what the truth is. Then, like Brexit, we argue endlessly about whether that was true, whether that was false, and whether it could be entirely different. But that's not true here. Everything is, in our culture we live in, a matter of opinion. Everything is of individual preference. No one has the right to tell us what to do or how we should do it, pretty much in any situation. 
But Paul says to the Colossians, the truth doesn't come from within us. The truth comes from outside us and comes to us. The truth comes to us. What does it say right at the beginning of verse 6? So the gospel that has come to you. In other words, the truth is outside of us. The truth comes to us in the personal way of Jesus Christ. The truth pursues us. The truth confronts us. The truth comes to us. We hear the truth of the gospel, and we have a choice about what we do about the truth of the gospel. Do we take it? Do we accept it? Or do we reject it? Do we love the truth of the gospel? Or do we hate the truth of the gospel? But either way, we respond to the truth of the gospel. What we don't do is construct the truth for our pleasure. The church is always concerned with submitting to God's authority. Secondly, St. Swithin's is characterized by identity in Christ, if we see in verse 2. God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus Christ is Christianity. Jesus Christ is news of great joy. Jesus Christ is Christianity. It's not about Jesus. Christianity is not about Jesus. It is Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. And Christian identity is found in Christ. It's this identity of being in Christ that seems to have been stolen from so many of us Christians. If you read Paul's letters closely, the 13 letters in the New Testament, you'll see that actually Paul uses this phrase, in Christ or in Christ Jesus, 170 times. And what Paul's saying is that you're not defined by your geography. We are in Bath, but we're also in Christ. Christians are said to be in Christ. Christians are said to be many more times than Christ is in us. It is true that when we accept Christ and we decide to follow Jesus, that we open up our lives to Christ. It's true that the enter the Spirit of God enters our lives and we become part of him. But, Christ, but at the same time, you live in Christ. Christ is a constant influence in all our lives. Everywhere we go, everything we do, we Christians are united with Christ. We live in a Christ-drenched, Christ-saturated, Christ-filled world. And because we're in Christ, it means that actually everything you do matters. Everywhere you go matters. The influence of Christ is being carried with you wherever you go, when you're in the bank, when you're in the workplace, when you're at home, when you're in a wheelchair, when you're suffering with whatever it is that you're suffering. Your spiritual identity doesn't change depending on your circumstances or your geography. I am in Christ. I am in Christ. Thirdly, St. Swithin's is characterized by humble gratitude to God in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Pretty much, in those of you who know it will know that pretty much throughout Paul's letters, Paul gives thanks to the people he's writing to. And as I meditated on that this week, I thought, what a wonderful church. 
St. Swithin's would be if we regularly said to each other, I thank God for you. 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 So you thanking God reminds us that God is at the heart of everything. That he's the source of all blessing, of ultimate blessing. And when we say thank you, we remind ourselves that the person we're thanking is because of the open hands of God. He's the source of all generosity and blessing. He's the one who wants to continually lavish his goodness upon us and sing us flourish and grow like seeds that are planted in the ground. It's never been about us. It's always been about God's blessing. You'll see as we go through the second part of this uh, letter that the New Testament, uh, all the way through, brings together faith, hope, and love repeatedly as the ultimate distinguishing marks of having a Christian mind, of living Christianly, and of the church. Faith, hope, and love. And so I'm going to quickly look at those in turn. Firstly, faith. In verse 4 and in verse 5. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, says Paul. I wonder how you would talk about the culture that we live in today. I tend to think that actually, that as I go about, not in here, but also outside here, that we are filled with a deep sense of cynicism. We feel let down by leaders we hoped hugely for. We see moral failures in our leaders that we placed our trust in. We see cultures where the leaders abuse power again and again, who don't know when enough is enough, who look after themselves rather than look after the benefits of everybody. With Brexit, we're insecure about our futures. And we're bombarded by advertising and marketing that can make us even more cynical about life. So, for example, we watch adverts that go something like this, in which companies say things like, don't think of us as a multi-billion dollar global Goliath that is completely profit-driven, drilling oil in some of the most fragile ecosystems on the planet. Think of us as a friend of the earth who loves bunnies and butterflies and little girls running through wheat fields. You see, cynicism distrusts the word of others, distrusts their motives, distrusts what they say. And what it means is that you have to spend your energy looking at your back all the time. Is someone going to take advantage of you? Is someone going to put you down? It's a feeling that no one is telling you the truth for anything. It's a view of the world which basically has one eyebrow raised at whatever you see or whatever you hear. Oh, really? Oh, really? Oh, really? I mean, we Brits do do irony. That's one of the things we do do. So whenever we talk about faith, when we talk about the topic of faith, we talk about it in terms of ourselves. Because I can talk about myself and faith. I can talk about being self-reliant I can talk about what I believe in because actually it's all about me. It's all about faith in me. But over against that, Christians believe 
and embrace a God who is faithful, who never lies. In Jesus, we're presented with a God who has never lied, whose relationally has integrity in all they do, whose actions match his words. A God who comes to us in Jesus that demonstrates his love and his sacrifice for us. He, co- he demonstrates complete loyalty to us. See, amongst the brokenness, amongst the failures, among the faithlessness, it's God who demonstrates his faithfulness to us. There's one person we can turn our eyes to in this world who is true to his word. He's not trying to manipulate us. He's not trying to control us. He's not trying to market us. Jesus is that one person. And so we Christians, we don't simply withdraw from the world. We don't withdraw from other people and say we can't trust anybody. You have to be self-reliant. We know how unreliable we are. How we give up when the going gets tough, when we find ourselves in a crisis. That actually we honestly look at ourselves. That actually we're full of many mixed motives. But Christians rest on God, who is faithful who keeps his promises, who has integrity all the way through. A God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Fifthly, St. Swithin's is characterized by self-sacrificial love in verse 4, 5, and 8. And of the love you have, the faith and love that spring from the hope, and of your love in the Spirit. See love in there. In 21st century Britain, I would argue, and many others agree with this, that the individual self crowds out everything else in life. We are self-absorbed, we are self-indulgent, we are self-interested, we are self-obsessed, we are self-promoting, self-seeking, self-serving, and self-sufficient. One of the old definitions of sin is this. Sin is life turned in on itself. Sin is life curved in on itself. Selfishness. We see it in the public life. We see it in our marriages. We see it, for those of us bizarrely like me who are obsessed with sport, we see it in people in sport who just want to hog everything. We see it on the road that we don't want to let anybody come in front of us just in case they get there two minutes before we do to where it is we're going. And the revelation of God in Jesus is exactly the opposite to that. Instead of a life curved in on itself, the love of God that we get to see and we get to experience is flowing outwards. It's self-giving. It's self-sacrificial. And this love is not just something that we see between God and us. But it's also for us that we see demonstrated in our relationships day by day. It means that for me as a parent, to demonstrate God's love means that I've got to turn off my laptop or my telly or the telly and actually go and play with my kids. I've got to put off that thing I'm obsessed about, that is my little habit that I can't get out of. And I've actually got to go and give my life to somebody else. 
I've got to sacrifice my personal preferences, my personal things, to bless somebody else, rather than be in a world that's like a bubble that's really just all about me. And I understand that's hard. But that's what God calls us to. True love always involves saying no to something of our own demands and saying yes to someone else's needs. And finally, St. Swithin's is characterized by hope. In verse 5 and 6, the hope that's stored up for you. I wonder whether you think in Britain today that we are a country full of hope. Do we believe in a better tomorrow? I'd just say a survey, the press or the comments would make me believe that there is, when I deal with people pastorally, and I was particularly struck this summer as I went to New Wine, when all the talks on New Wine were about, do people genuinely change? I mean, do we genuinely believe that real change is possible? Or do we privately sit there, fatalistic and passive about life? That there's a spirit of hopelessness at, at bay. We've lost confidence that genuine change can happen, that we can be fixed. We end up operating a mindset, if we're not careful, that it says, I'm broken. Well, I'm beyond repair. God doesn't love me. God doesn't want me. And there's no way out of the circumstances I'm in. And the difficulty with that, if that's what we're really feeling about life, and really feeling about our circumstances, we end up putting our hope in the wrong place. We end up putting it in politicians who well, may be well-meaning at times, but aren't going to deliver for you. We're going to put it in people who we think will save us from our circumstances. We put it in money and possessions that we think that will fill that hole within our life. We put it in our medication that we think will do it all for us. Or maybe we even put it in a particular prayer that we say, you know, if God answers that one prayer then my life will be fine. I'll have a better tomorrow. Repentance, at the heart of repentance, often means that I will stop fixing my eyes on my own performance, on my own demands, on my own agenda, and on my own things about how I think life should work, how I think this church should work. I will stop fixing my eyes on my looks, or on men, or on the battle with, that I'm having with drink, or with alcohol, or someone else's opinion that I think is the most valuable opinion in the world. And instead of all those things, as a Christian will say, I'm fixing my eyes on Jesus. I'm putting my hope in Christ alone. And the distinguishing mark of a Christian mind is having hope in Christ alone. The only way I'm going to have a better tomorrow that is more joyful is if I fix my eyes on Christ, that my hope is him or him and him alone. I have a future with Christ for all eternity. I can persevere in the face of the challenges that I'm facing in my life today because I know there's an ultimate tomorrow, there's an ultimate future that is set and secure and is mine and is my inheritance. I'm reaching forward to God's ultimate goal for me, which is my complete salvation in Christ. Christians, I don't have to, Christians don't have to get everything now, because in the end, we get the very best. We get Christ.
to this morning. We are called to live differently, to look at life differently, to live differently than the, the way the world does. Because the Christian life is lived with a Christian viewpoint, with a Christian perspective, with a Christian worldview, through the eyes of God alone. That is distinguished by faith, love, and hope. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your voice amongst us, for your hand upon us, for your goodness to us, for your faithfulness to us. We ask that you continue to pour out your spirit afresh upon each one of us. Wherever we are, whatever it is we're struggling with, whatever it is we're doing, that you would shape us in a church after your own heart. We would fix our eyes on you. We get our eyes off ourselves and look to you, our hope, our restorer, our redeemer, our rock and our fortress. It's in you we put our hope. Thank you that you love us unconditionally. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, before we have a sort of more extended time of singing and worship together, my response, uh, those of you uh, who are a bit observant, well, notice I didn't get beyond verse 8. Uh, so I've put a card. I'd like, actually, any adult, I would actually like you to find a card or to take a card of some kind. And my, my application this morning is this, is very simply this. On the back of that card is a, trans- <coughs> a transposition, sort of, of the verses 9 to 14, which is the of a Colossians 1 that we didn't get to. And it's Paul's prayer. And what I'd love you to do is to commit this week to take that card and to pray those nine things. Is it nine or ten? I think it's probably ten. There are ten points on that card. I'd love you to pray that for three people within this congregation. That's what I'd love you to do. I'd love you to take that card and I'd love you to pray each day for three people in this church. And I would like you to think about those three people in your own head now and not just your friends. At least one of those people could I encourage you to pray for somebody you don't know very well about blessing other people. If you do that, that'd be great. Thank you.